this is Santi Gold, and you're listening to my new podcast, Noble Champions, conversations to expand your mind, feed your soul, and push culture forward. I'm speaking to artists, friends, progressive thinkers, and activists about important topics that we believe need championing, issues that I want to bring more light and attention to through thoughtful conversation. The idea of doing this podcast came to me while I was working on my new album, Spirituals. It's been crazy times over the last couple years, and I had so many things on my mind as I was writing songs and lyrics that I was needing to talk through it with all my friends and fellow artists. And the conversations I was having were really insightful and inspiring. So I decided that I wanted to have more conversations like them and share them. So I decided to do a podcast. Seeing as how it was the album that inspired the podcast, I thought that for these first few episodes, it would be cool to play a little bit of the song that inspired each episode's topic. So the inspiration song of the day is called Witness. It's about artists serving as mirrors to culture, about us tapping into spirit, that's something greater when we create, and then being a bridge to that place beyond. And it's about the toll it can take on artists. Here's a segment that speaks on this idea. episode, we'll be exploring the topic of art and spirituality with two incredible creators. Yasin Bey, also known as Most Def, is a multi-hyphenate artist, musician, rapper, actor. He's probably made as many films as he has albums, and his immense talent shines through in everything he does. I remember meeting him just after his first rap group, UTD, single came out in the late 90s and being blown away by his rap skills. And then a few years later, seeing him on stage in the Broadway show he did with Jeffrey Wright, Top Dog Underdog, and barely being able to comprehend how it could be the same person. Just mind blowing. He's also by far one of the funniest people I know. But what is not funny is how he was 55-0 minutes late joining this interview. Here he is from a studio in Barcelona. Hi. You, 50 minutes later. Is it hot there too? It's in the mid-80s here, but it feels like 100. Also joining this conversation is my much more punctual friend, visual and conceptual artist, and current MLK scholar at MIT, Sanford Biggers. And also, I just found out, the keyboardist for Moon Medicine, an amazing band. (laughs) Who's in the band, Sanford? Martin Luther, Jahi Sundance, Andre Simone. Mark Hines. Did you know about that, Yasin? I vaguely know about that, but that sounds like a much more developed lineup. But you and Jahi and Martin Luther, you guys have been doing stuff together for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we only do, you know, small exclusive gigs like, you know, Art Basel or if I have a show at one of the museums, we'll do a special event. That's dope. I really had no idea. I was like, what? You do what? We get deep in this conversation about how spirituality informs our work, the act of creating being a spiritual ritual in itself, how we crave art for our spiritual needs, and also how art is becoming increasingly materialistic, base, and commodified. We discuss luminaries who've passed on, like musician Bismarcky, writer Greg Tate, and artist Basquiat and sister Gertrude Morgan. And also, we talk plants. Today, we're here talking about art and spirituality art and spirit, one of the first things I wanted to talk about is how those two things are inextricable in some cultures, not ours currently, (laughs) but how art and spirituality and life was all the same. Like you couldn't separate one from the other. I think acknowledging a connection to higher forces, that's always been part of my process. And I think it's probably the same for a lot of creators, but my industry, specifically the art, industrial complex used to have a very difficult time Mm. talking about it. So there was a while where I didn't say it. I let the work say it. 
but it's good to be amongst like-minded people where we can have a conversation. But I think the bottom line is a lot of the cultures that I've been interested in, like pre-Columbian, various African cultures, various cultures throughout Asia, everything's sort of incorporated. You have food, you have poetry, you have dance, you have song, you have visual arts, you have fashion, all of that intertwined. And I think it sort of falls on the West. Western cultures have bifurcated and trifurcated all that and made separate categories and industries. But I don't know if that's the most natural way of creating. I think it has to do with the commodification, really, of art and just being able to sell it. And like, it's interesting that you said that you couldn't really talk about it when you were doing it. Like, why? What would happen? In the early stages of my career, people would shut down. Right. Specifically critics, the scrutinizers, you know, the jury, as it was. And I think it's because you're dealing with the ineffable. And it was very easy to try to poke holes in it because no one can come to one type of consensus on what does it mean to have spirituality in your work. It's almost like mm-hmm. saying beauty. And there's no real universal beauty. There's all kinds of more subjective beauties. Because beauty was a bad word, too, to be honest with you. When I was coming up through um, art school and all that, I mean, you couldn't even use the word wow. beauty. These things were just, they were too broad. I think it was just too open. If you said beauty, was it like you were being lazy because there was like a, Decorative. an external standard of what people see as beauty rather than what sure. you were creating from your inner idea of what beauty was? So you just leave it out? Yeah, if you say beauty or things like that it would be considered decorative, Mm -hmm. which was a no-no in dealing with conceptual art, I'd say. If you say spirituality, it ended up being too new agey. Okay. And once again, it didn't satisfy some of the uh, more academic predilections of the people I was dealing with. But I think the reality is they just weren't in tune. Well, yeah, because if you can't talk about spirituality and you can't talk about beauty and you're creating art, then you can't talk about the process of art, of creating art, because those two things are why I create art. You know what I mean? I create beauty because I need to feed my spirit. I need to be able to connect with my spirit, really feed my personal spirit, connect with the higher spirit by creating beauty for me to move towards. So if you can't talk about any of that, then you can't talk about what you're doing. I mean, I would argue with them. I was like, you can't look at Caravaggio or Da Vinci or Michelangelo and not be experiencing beauty and some degree of spirituality. Especially considering that a lot of the Renaissance work was in cathedrals and churches in the first place. So I always thought it was a strange argument. But, you know, I think it was also a desire for people to sharpen their intellectual chops and try to make art into more of a philosophical conversation rather than a spiritual, natural conversation. Well, there's a school of thought that says we don't talk about the essential because there is nothing essential to, to address. You know, we're dealing with just measurable realities and everything that we can measure and see is sort of put on a scale, so to speak. It's just another approach. It's a comforting, sober approach to life and work. And there's another approach. And that's fine for people who feel that way. It's not about how people agree. It's how they disagree. The thing that troubles me most about that argument is that it's so hostile toward another point of view. If you don't think like this, if you're not arranging reality in this way, well, not only are you wrong, you're just like daft. You know, you're just like, you're not worth listening to. I think the people who are open about referencing spirit or the big word that everybody has a problem with God <laughs> or any iteration of that in their work are like, hey, you don't believe, fine. But it seems like the people that don't are like, well, if you do, there's something wrong with you. And more often than not, that ends up having all types of cultural and racial overtones. You know, I find that to be very, very interesting. More often than not, and at least in my experience, the people of faith could interact with people who did not have faith. And, you know, they might have their own opinion strongly held about that, but they'd be like, hey, to each his own, that's really kind of on you. But it was the people who didn't have faith who ironically seemed more evangelical, so to speak, about converting people to their point of view. All people don't think alike. Uh, This monoculture is sort of spreading at this alarming rate where it's like you can only have one perspective. If it's not a monolith, it's like a biolith. You have freedom of choice, but it's only like five options. (laughs) That are acceptable. Of a suitable response. And I think it's also the measure of a society 
or a culture is how well it disagrees. Well, yeah. And how well it respects points of view that are not its own. But I also think that a lot of what we're talking about in terms of like spirituality is such a broader term. And it's like, yes, we all have different faiths or different ideas of who or what or if God is. But that's why when we talk about spirituality and art specifically, like I'm saying, some of these traditional cultures, it was like a very specific set of beliefs that they were practicing. But just in terms of like the creation and the act of creation and turning our views internally rather than externally to connect with our own higher selves, our own sense of connection with the beyond, and then creating from that place, that is a spiritual act, no matter what my religious beliefs are. And that's the common ground. And that's the part that unless you just are like, there's no higher version of anything, you know what I mean? But that should be an almost universal understanding that you could actually connect a higher version, a higher force. That's why I use the word ineffable, because ultimately I think the whole conversation to some degree gets trapped by semantics. Because one of the um, tactics I learned when I was in that environment is how to speak about it in different ways. But you're saying the same thing, but you start changing the words out. What I saw as the common thing that in some degrees we're calling spirituality in terms of the creative process is actually just being present, supremely present, so present that you become a vessel for all the things that might be coming out of you as a lyricist, as a singer, as a musician, as an artist, as a poet, and being able to be flexible with that. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not great, but you still do that. And that exercise itself is an exercise almost in meditation and being present that is Mm. clearly operating on a higher plane, a plane that ultimately none of us could really define because to define it almost gets rid of the grandiosity of the act itself. The freedom of it. It's actually absolute freedom. Art is free. And when you are creating art, you are free. And that's why it's a spiritual act. That's why even the word spirituals, like my new album's called Spirituals. Spirituals were songs that in the absence of freedom, Black people created to experience being free through music, through art. They were able to transcend their complete environment, circumstances, and experience freedom, joy, all the stuff through art because it's a spiritual act. One of the brothers in my community was quoting one of the elders is saying, there are the messengers in all of the different faith traditions, you know, prophets, if you will, in this unassailable gap. And after them are the artists. And so it's like the messengers, the holders of divine messages, and then the creators. Some would even argue that some of the prophets in themselves were artists of a sort. Because, it's a, you know, a creative act is to share what you know or to share what you've experienced with others so that they might experience the joy of the revelation that you've had. And I think that's the other part about the creative process and the spiritual aspect is the revelation. There's sometimes, and I'm sure that we've all experienced this, where you'll be in the process of doing something, you have an idea, or you have something that occurred to you, and you get into the process of doing it, and you have a revelation. After it's done, you have another sort of revelation. So the creative act is, I think, almost as much or more about what you don't know. Right as it is about what you do. And one of the things that comes to mind with you, Sanford, is you did this huge mosaic on the floor. It's granular. So could you talk about I'm just my own curiosity. I'm going to get into, like, fandom a little bit here. Um, but that's a very devoted sort of meditative process, whether you're doing it alone or with a group of people. As you're going through that process... Are you aware of a sort of state that you're entering? Absolutely. It's what you said. It's not about when you're doing it that that's the thing. Right. You're doing it to get to someplace you don't know. You're doing it to sort of address the unknown. Hmm. I think that's what creativity ends up being. Because if you knew it all, then you're not creative. You're not being creative at that point. You're actually just implementing a plan. Being creative is when you let the uh, sort of unknowable start to take control. 
I did a couple of pieces that were the Sanskrit symbols for Om, but I did it in colored sand, right. poured directly on the floor. Right. And then ultimately I did a very large version of a prayer rug, like a sixth century Afghani prayer rug that was 20 feet by 40 feet. So it was massive. And it was all poured sand. And I did it with a team of people, but yeah, that's us five or six days working all day. Is that happening on the group level? That's intense. It's so intense because a lot of the people who volunteered had never done that before. So the first day you're training people how to do this thing, pour sand at a very slow rate so that it's perfectly even over a large surface area. And no one thinks they can do it. And then finally they get a hang of it. And then by day two, they're all doing their improvisational way. They're finding weird positions to get comfortable. And they're doing this thing because now they've mastered wow. the actual act. But then there's the next state where the conversations that they're having start to just go into these crazy directions. And then the next day, it's silent the whole day because people have talked out and they're working. And all you hear is like sifting of sand in a room. And it's like eight people in total science for hours and happy and totally right. there because something's already happened where they're sort of outside of the body now. Right. The hands are moving, right. the eyes are moving, and their head is somewhere else, but somehow collectively in the same space, you know? Because that's the thing. The act of the creation is actually in itself a way to connect with that higher divine energy. And if you're doing it, then you feel it. Basically, mm -hmm. whether you know how to do it, whether you think you know how to do it, it's just in the act. And I feel like as artists, there's an internal necessity for us to have that connection, to feel whole, right? There's something spiritual about the need to be an artist, the need to create. And then as an audience, there's like a hunger for it. And so I think culturally, there is a spiritual need around art. Well, for beauty and the creative acts, for sure. I said recently, I said, art is that thing that people forget that they need until they need it. We've been born into a society or a social structure that commodifies everything. Exactly. And the more personal and almost sacred in nature that that thing is, the more active the campaign to commodify it and turn it into a product to like scorched earth <laughs> approach to on like, you know, everything can be sold. Watch. We will find a way to market it. We will find a way to put a price gun on your dreams, your aspirations, your needs. We're going to find a way to take this to market to keep the production needle going forward. It's one thing to be an artist just in general, born into a society that often may be indifferent at best or hostile at worst to those sorts of inclinations. It's another thing to be a black artist, and this is not like, you know, ring the complaint bell, but ring it. everything that I said is <laughs> compounded in a black body. There was one brother, I've seen this, this thing going on around online, and he was sitting in this kind of round table with, you know, an Asian guy with some white guys, and we're talking about, you know, diversity, and and they were having a conversation. He was really polite, and then they said something, and he just kind of went off on them. He said, you cannot touch me, you cannot taste me, I'm not palatable to you, you cannot have an American ethnicity because to be an American, you have to give up your ethnicity, you have to give something up of yourself. You can't be who you are to be an American. And he said, in order for us to do that, it kills us. He said, and it kills you too, but you don't recognize it. And the thing is, is that this system is bad for everybody, mm. but it's super, super bad for us. <laughs> and this is the difference between like art and entertainment. Forgive me if I'm getting on the soapbox here, but this is the crux of what we're talking about. It's the difference between being an entertainment product, which is what they want everything to be to a certain degree, and being something beyond what the market dictates. And anybody that resists that is always going to be mocked chided, attempted to be disavowed and all that. Or locked out, or just locked out. Like when you talk about Black artists trying to do something different. Every time, it's like, how dare you? How dare you have the audacity 
to not participate in the way that we have set forth, even if it's better for you and for us. Because the fact of the matter is, is that often what we propose is a more amenable, effective system for everybody. It works better for us. It works better for everybody else. But the fact that it's coming from us and it rejects all of the conventions that have been hoisted onto everybody and threatens those who are clinging to the status quo to prove their method ineffective or unnecessary or just to, to provide another alternative. It's like, no, we will resist you tooth and nail to keep you from establishing that precedent. And they never really succeed at all. I mean, every time that we've resisted those conventions, and it's certainly not without sacrifice, but it always happens, and it births other things. I don't want to hear about how successful or how many widgets somebody sold. Show me what conduit they created for others to be. It's so big what you just said, because not only are you talking about the commodification of art, but you're talking about when somebody can dictate who you are. They can control you culturally by dictating what is sellable. Standards of conduct, standards of beauty. Yeah, like specifically in music. Okay, so already we're living in this really soulless era where art is attending to the lowest needs, right? So it's like what's being talked about in art is drugs <laughs> or social media. Escapism. Or escapism, like anything that keeps you from thinking about anything that you need to be thinking about. And that's what's commodifiable, right? That's what's sellable. And so all the pop music, all the biggest music, all this shit being played on the radio is empty. And if you're talking about the music made by Black people that's allowed in that lane, it's got to be empty. It's got to be talking about nothing. So it's like, what you're saying is not only that like music sucks, the stuff that people are talking about has to be empty to be sellable, but now we're talking about Black people in particular. I mean, honestly, the doors are wider for white artists, white musicians. Yeah, of course. But as Black people, you have to be extra limited because you aren't even allowed the spectrum of creativity to be considered sellable. And until you can prove... How did it do at the market? But even then, it's still limited to what the market will accept. I think that commodification where you're talking about is also ultimately a form of control. It controls the output of the artist, but it also controls how the viewers or the listeners consume it. And it's all based on that consumption. You have limited stations playing a limited range of music for a limited audience. And the more they drum it down and play it over and over again, people think that that's the full spectrum. When we all know that there are several alternatives, but the alternatives don't have the financial industrial complex to make a living from. And slowly, even mainstream becomes almost untenable. Funny thing, Dante, when you mentioned that sand piece, I made that sand piece specifically because at the end, it gets swept up. It couldn't be sold. That's the other part. I was like, to do something that's that intense and labor intensive, and actually like very focused, it's just the geometry of it, the scale of it and all of that, and to render it as ephemera in essence. It's like, this is like a sunset. You see it, you experience it, and after that, you know, I'm sure that there's images of it, but the viewers have to hold it inside of themselves. Absolutely, that's it. These are the things that are worth like fighting for and living for, and if you don't know what you're gonna let kill you, you're not really living. And I can guarantee you is that the people who worship the bank and the market are prepared to fall on that sword. I mean, they do. People are killing themselves when the crypto market crashes. Literally. Seriously. Get a cat. Get a plant, man. Get a plant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why it's a valid conversation to talk about creators and spirituality. Because people who don't feel that they are creative or have not embraced their creative side are the ones who are usually scrutinizing the language that creatives use and the out-of-the-box thinking that we use. And the way for them to bring it back into something tangible is to bring it back into numbers. And the only mm -hmm. way to measure the success of numbers is to be like, who profits, who makes money, and how much money? Most creative musicians, we all know this, the baddest musician could be flat broke. And the richest musician out there or performer out there could be total trash. You know, we're talking about America just in terms of like a, a social frame. When I was doing theater in London, 
in the early 2000s, I was working at not even a West End theater. I was working at basically the British equivalent of the public theater, the Royal Court. Beautiful theater, legacy theater. They made prices affordable for most people. They had something I had never seen in any theater in the States. They had a restaurant, a pub in the the basement of the theater. So like going out to the theater was like a full on event as an evening. I heard reports that that theater got something upwards of millions of pounds a year in national endowments. That was a career trajectory for everybody working in that theater, for everybody from the actors to the stagehands to the people who worked behind the scenes to the vendors who were working in the kitchen and selling drinks and all that. So you're saying that they're supporting the arts? Because they value the arts, right. right? Even if it's contesting social norms or whatever, or it's challenging, they value the place that it holds in the society and the need for that to be present in a social structure. In America, the exact opposite is happening. It's like, we don't give artists money. We put artists to work to make money for corporations. And we don't value art anyway. We value commodity. Entertainment. More superhero movies, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more superhero. I mean, if you say an art, that's like saying there's a place where the monks go and then there's a place where the bankers go. You know what I'm saying? And if you're a banker, you're a banker. But the monks are not pretending to be bankers. But the bankers are pretending to be monks. But now we live in a world where people can't tell the difference. Oh, for me, it's like, why do you take so long to write records? I'm like, because I write the records. I've been reading this Kandinsky meditation. It's called um, Concerning the Spiritual and Art. And it was written in 1910 by Vasily Kandinsky. And he's talking all about art and spirituality and the relationship between the two. And he puts out this idea of this sort of like pyramid structure At each level, there's artists, you know, and at the bottom are the artists that are the most widely accepted and that people can relate to the easiest. And then as you go up, the purpose of the pyramid is to move culture forward and up. And it's always moving, but sometimes slower than others, sometimes it's barely moving. But at the very top is like a Beethoven or like somebody that was just completely ostracized from society. No one had any idea what they're doing. They were crazy, but they were ahead and nobody supported them, Mm. or Van Gogh. Like nobody bought their paintings, nobody, whatever, until later. And at the lowest levels, like everybody gets it. But what happens is when the lowest level is the main part, sometimes they're, like I said, they're tending to like the lowest needs of society. And sometimes these artists are tending to their own lowest needs. So they're putting out kind of poison. It just becomes like a toxic culture. Fast food. I don't really believe in the mass in that way. And that probably sounds like a really like, I don't know how that sounds. It sounds dismissive or bourgeois or whatever. But it's always the work of a few first and early that everybody benefits from, whether they understand it in the short, even the long term. We are better off for Beethoven and Basquiat and Sun Ra and John Coltrane making Love Supreme, all of those things that are derided sometimes or misunderstood in their time, are actually, without it being said as loudly as some of us might like, those are the standard bearers. All of the stuff that does well in the marketplace in the short term, well, it doesn't age well. And history shows that if you go back 10 years and look at everything that was on the top of the chart, so to speak, you separate the grain from the chaff fairly quickly. Even in a popular context, if you look at Billboard magazine, you look at the top 200 albums, and then you look at the top catalog albums, you're going to get a much different story. Mm. And I think that people are so conditioned to expect, it feel almost entitled to the quickest results possible with the least amount of effort expended I feel like it's been happening for such a long time. It's basically a a desensitization process that's been happening for years. Our sense Mm. of quality, our sense of even hearing the quality of certain music Mm. has gone just by the technology itself. You see the same thing happen in the art world. You look at the art magazines and who was on the cover 15, 20, 30 years ago, and 
you won't remember half of them. Any of them. But, you know, and we're working in a microcosm, too, because most people aren't even looking at the right. full spectrum of contemporary art. That also happens. But, you know, they used to say that uh, religion was the opiate of the masses, but it turns out capitalism ends up being the opiate of the masses <laughs> globally. <laughs> Listen, everybody's religious. Human beings are created to worship. And every human being is devoted mm-hmm. to something. You know, this notion that there are faithless people, the agnostic is evangelical mm-hmm. about his agnostics, you know, states. The atheist is evangelical about mm-hmm. not believing. We are all devoted to something. The question is, is how well does that thing serve us in right. all of our needs, whether they be base, median, or high? Where is the priority on those needs? If you're serving a thing where the priority is the base needs, well, then we're at the point in history where we can see how that always works out. And also, just from even an empirical point of view, all of the promises of modernity in terms of access and material wealth have failed to deliver. Right. If you have all of this material wealth in 2022, you have loneliness listed as a medical issue in Britain, you know, where people are like dying from loneliness. So you got all of the paved streets and all of the well-designed buildings and all of the lights, but people are dying for lack of friendship. Connection. Or just Mm -hmm. actual human connection. If you have all of this material wealth and people are glibly walking by, people sleeping in the street, that's not the measure of a civilized society. Well, we know we end up buying more and more things and feeling that we have access because we get a little bit more money to get more stuff to ultimately isolate ourselves even more and disconnect ourselves even more. I mean, you have technology without mentioning names, but we all know all the major companies out there that are saying it's your choice. You can customize and have this as your individual thing. But once you have that, you still have access to the same thing everybody else does. And you're doing the same things and comparing yourself to everybody else. Exactly. Which promotes nothing but loneliness, depression, lack of self-esteem, and all these other things. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Well, that's the the interesting thing is about how art can propel culture forward and about specifically in times like these when all of our systems and pillars are completely shaken, like whether it's like science and pandemics or mortality or everything is kind of like falling apart. And so it's times like these when art is really needed. For artists, these are times when artists start to shift their focus internally instead of externally. Like for me, during the last couple of years, I had to make my album because it was like a lifeline for me because I felt like I was just suffocating, drowning. There was too much going on, whether it's wildfires and protests, people getting killed and shootings. And you know what I mean? It's just so much. Sometimes for my own protection, I have to shift my focus from external to internal. And in doing that, I can find my own peace, my own beauty, my own light, my own joy. And so for artists, that's what we do. But for the people who don't know that they can do that yet, what we make in those moments is so important because that's how we share that peace, that joy, that hope. Hope, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a dangerous place where culture doesn't realize that they need you and they don't allow you Mm -hmm. to play your role because... They don't support you. Oh, man, let me tell you something. Oh, Everything man, that we, let me tell you something. <laughs> it's a very cynical thing where it's like, we the unwilling led by the unknowing doing the impossible for the ungrateful, <laughs> said every <laughs> devoted parent ever. You know what I'm saying? And at some point we've been as ungracious as others are being to us. We're all in a crowded space. And we're stepping on toes sometimes. The thing is to just try to do the next best thing and to eliminate or mitigate the harm index in your interaction with people. Art is important because in order to create anything of any lasting value, you have to employ very essential human principles like patience, belief, forbearance. Trust. Trust. You know, as creators... We trust when you're putting something out there that's awkward and when you're going outside of your comfort zone, when you're doing something that's disruptive to your own sense of comfort in the creative process that will hopefully be disruptive Mm. in a positive way for others when they get it. That's also a spiritual thing because there's that trust you put out there. You'll trust in 
your abilities, your trust in your process and your project that it's going to go out there and it's going to have the impact on those it needs to reach. It may not reach McDonald's numbers. Yeah, you can't even think about that, especially if you're already where you want people to get to. Exactly. They might not get it, but you have to do it because of your inner need. Mm -hmm. I think that's the difference. Like an artist is operating off of what they just need Mm -hmm. to do because they know that that's what needs to happen or that's what's coming through. And it can't be dependent on how it's received or what the cultural climate is or whatever. I think that's important. I think that's how we end up with the art that actually pushes things forward is because people like Coltrane, people like Sun Ra, what you're saying, they just did what they needed to do. They made what they needed to make. And it was there for people when they got to it. Mm -hmm. You know who I was thinking of when you say that? Are you guys familiar with Emohoi Sige Meriam, the Ethiopian piano? She's a nun. You had her in the show in Brooklyn. Incredible. She's been a nun for like the better part of her adult life. And basically all she does is worships and plays these amazing piano compositions. She studied abroad, you know, in the early part of her life and went to Europe and all of that sort of thing, and it came back to Ethiopia. It's the type of music that you put on and it immediately elevates any setting, you know? And it's just her simply playing the piano, and it's all of her stories in there, you know, her European influences on composition, and it's super, super African as well. But it's just also coming from a person who, in essence, is like rejected mm-hmm. society. And just was like focused on their spiritual journey and their creative journey. Another person that comes to mind is Sister Gertrude from New Orleans, the painter. It was some people call it outsider art, but this person that was just like solely focused on their spiritual experience and their creative output as an expression of their spiritual experience. And I think it's important for artists and for many people in general, but artists specifically, to seek out those examples and those stories and to keep yourself kind of refreshed. But I also think that like, that's where we are in human development right now in the world, like in the evolution of humanity. It's like, we're terribly afraid of change. I mean, everything that's happening right now, like the extra like pushback that we're getting right now is because things are changing drastically and it's threatening people's systems, it's threatening people's positions, it's threatening people's pockets and people are terrified. So they push even harder. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast was because of these conversations that we've been having and that I've been having with friends throughout this time where everybody's feeling so isolated, so separated, where I was personally feeling just really overwhelmed. And also, you know, as an artist, you know, I'm a field sponge, you know what I mean? I I just feel everything that's going on and it's, it could be debilitating. And to be able to talk it through with other people that think this way and who value thinking, you know, <laughs> and ideas is honestly how we keep moving forward. And that's why I wanted to take these conversations out into the world so that people could hear some of these conversations, that the conversations are happening. I think that's the job of artists. Like we are the mirrors. We show people where we're at. Sometimes when people look, they get afraid and they run, they close their eyes. They don't want to know, but that's our job. The gift for me is to know how it works. Like I know when I'm sinking, when I'm drowning, when I'm suffocating, I'm losing, losing my grip. I know that I can just go inside and start creating and that I'm grounded. But everybody doesn't know that they have that power. And so what our job is, is to make it for ourselves and then offer it out. Grab on. It'll lift you up. The other thing, too, is you have the latitude to express who you are as far as it does no harm to others. People don't have to agree, but I'm not gonna burn down your house, I'm not gonna poison the water. Everything that I want for myself, I want for you. I want Mm -hmm. peace and harmony for all, even like Nas says, much success to you, even if you wish me the opposite. And I think that generally the spirit of the artist is along those lines more often than not. Now, if you let yourself be co-opted and turned into a product, Well, then, you know, if the bag is that important to you, you can't complain when there's nothing beyond that for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you can't complain when when it doesn't bring you what you think it's going to bring you either. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like what it's bringing you, then do something different. Just in music alone, again, when you think about the times where we are and how you said, you know, if you want the bag, right? And it's just like, 
So you get the bag or you pretending you got the bag and you're singing about the bag, right? <laughs> All of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> that doesn't even go with where we are in the world. You know what I mean? Like people are fucking broke right. and struggling. Let me tell you something. If I had a bunch of money, the first thing I would do is pretend that I didn't have a bunch, <laughs> a of, bunch money. of money. <laughs> right. I don't want the stress. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't want the stress. If they put me in Forbes, I would go in Forbes and be like, you are lying. <laughs> so first of all, how did you have this information about me? What calculator are you using about? The First of all, I just think it's gross that anybody knows what the other person makes. I mean, like, you know, like when LeBron James went on Oprah, Straight when up. he was like 11, and she was like, you just made $95 million. I was like, Oprah. Jeez Louise, this guy, <laughs> he's 13 years old. He's putting his business out there like that. But that's where we are. Like, everybody is, like, so much on that. But it's also unrelatable. It's unsustainable, and it doesn't lift people up. Fall of Rome. Everybody that mm-hmm. operated like that as a society, you go visit them in museums and see them as relics. Yeah. But they don't win. Exactly. But keeping our attention focused on that is another way of keeping us in place. It's about control. I think a message of hope and encouragement has to go out. i tell you this little story, and then I got to go even though I came late because of who I am as a person. <laughs> well, time is up. Anyway, it's good. But I had this little plant in my house, right? And I went to public school and grew up in the projects, so I don't have the greenest of thumbs, so to speak. So, I, you know, in my daily whatever adventures, misadventures, the life of the plant <laughs> was not doing well. <laughs> and, I, you know, I used to do these kind of like little platitudes, like say like encouraging words to the plant. Hey, what's up? Sound like a little plant. I love you. You are a great living thing. When was this? This is recently, right? Okay, okay, okay. It sounds pretty evolved. So I was doing some travels and I come home and I see my plant. It's like, oh, man, it's like I ain't doing good. It's leaning down like shit, man. I killed this lovely plant, man. So... I said, man, I got to do something about this plant. You know, me with my limited public school knowledge of horticulture, I said, let me cut off the brown parts and you know, asking my mom. That my was aunt, right. Mom, she just cut off the brown parts. That's fine, that's fine. So I started cutting off the little brown parts. <laughs> I apologized to the plant. I was like, you know, I've been real busy. It's been a lot going on, man. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm trying <laughs> to see you flourish. Man, lady, I don't know what sex you are, but plant. You know, I appreciate your presence. <laughs> and then, you know, I put a little grapefruit rinds in the soil and don't water it too much. Play a little that. jazz, Emma Horns. And man, you know what? This thing is sprouting and looking real good. My, you know, they helped me tie up the little loose branches. And now my little plant doing great. And it was looking mm-hmm. bad, bad. It's like, you know, you see a dead plant in your house. Right. You just No matter how clean your house is, if there's a dying plant in your house, you'd be like, you don't have it together, do you? Yes. <laughs> feel like a failure. You feel like a failure. Man, I brought my little plant back. And it was the best feeling, but it was also like this metaphor of like mm-hmm. hope. That is a metaphor for hope. Mm-hmm. Just enough care, love, sunshine, and encouragement could bring back a plant. <laughs> a care and nurturing goes a long way. I feel hopeful. That was a great story. A care and nurturing goes a long way, man. And positive attention. I remember in my little apartment in Fort Greene that you used to come over, I had one plant. It was a big, tall cactus. <laughs> I remember one day I came in and the cactus had flopped over. <laughs> and I got a cactus because I thought you couldn't kill a cactus. It bent in half. It flopped. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, I'm just not good at plants. But lately, I can relate because I have plants in my house right now. And I've been trying so hard. Yeah, they give the love back. They give the love back, you know. Any living being responds Responds to that that type of encouragement. And it's like, unfortunately, they're not getting it in the art right now, right? So what we need is to just create more avenues for the art that's given that positive reinforcement and encouragement. Yeah, but you know what, too, man? These knuckleheads got to take some responsibility (laughs) for their own lives. Fucking plan. I'm serious, man. (laughs) 
No, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about the plans. I know, I know. I'm not I'm talking kidding. about the plans. I'm, I'm talking about these people. It's like, listen, man, you spend a hundred some odd dollars, two hundred dollars a month on all these different streaming services, right? You got the Netflix and the Deezer and this one and that one, and you got a thousand apps on your mm-hmm. phone. You complain, you got Instagram, you got Twitter, the ding, 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 ding. The thing with the other thing. You bought the new Jordans. You went to Shake Shack. You got the vegan whatever, whatever, whatever. Tiffany Supreme collab came out, and you got that, and with the jeans, and the thing, and the thing, and the thing. And you don't feel good. And everybody's telling you, oh, this is what you need to do to improve your life, and, you know, seven tips for manifesting, blah, 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 blah. You know what's up. Harriet Tubman built the under. Ground railroad without no permit. And the Montgomery bus boycotts happen. Yeah, you can figure it out. People had one pair of shoes no and shoes. no mixtapes. No mix and right, yeah. you have options out here. Right. Come on, man. You got to figure it out, human beings. Uh, we out here figuring it out and going through it, too. The audience, I mean, I love y'all. We're going through this together, but I am not the guardian of y'all. People need to I'm, use some good old-fashioned analog common sense. I don't have enough <laughs> issue getting the people I'm actually the guardians <laughs> of to, to, to follow my direction. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do not want to be your leader. I'm just trying to do something that is useful and beautiful that I find beautiful and share mm-hmm. it with you. If you going to sit there and drink the Sonic or the audio or the visual equivalent of Coca-Cola and Twinkies all day, I don't know what to tell you, bro. And if that's what you like and you're going to let it drag you to the road of perdition, well, all I could do is pray for you, bro. That's I'm right. super busy just trying to manage my own self and life and be a useful human being. I'm not mature all the time. I need help, too. Uh, so, so, listen, if you give custodianship of your life over to the metaverse or whatever, but that's not my fault. I'm not I'm trying to save them. I'm not trying to drown you, but listen... I am not going to reach That's down right. so far That's that right. I end up in the sinkhole with y'all. No haps, <laughs> bro. I'm sorry. That's not how that go. That, I'm not doing that. If you live long enough, I mean, I'm without saying too much about age, but you know what? Next year, I'll be 50 years old. No, no, you're almost 50. you just basically 50. I'll be 50 years yeah. old yeah. next year. I'm so close to 50 that I'm 50. You know what I'm saying? Nobody, when oh, they're 48, geez. nobody goes, oh, you're 48 and a half. They'd be like, you're 50. Man, you basically 50. So with that being said, how many funerals have I gone to? You know, how many sick wards have I visited? Mm. I still can't mm. believe that Bismarck is not alive and that he wasn't 75 mm. or 80 years old. Mm-hmm. That's the things that I be thinking about. I'm like, well, damn, like they passed on and I'm graduated. And it was a rough graduation. Others such as myself are trying to carry on tradition, as AZ said. Hey, I think about Greg Tate. Daily. Oh my gosh, that was such a shock. Anyone on here who has not heard or read Greg Tate, just do it. You know, when I was 17, you guys, when I had first got to Wesley and I just got to college, I was like, I'm going to write an article <laughs> about hip hop. Right. Just, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what it was about, but it was this long essay that I just was writing. Somehow, I have no idea how. I got it to Greg Tate and we were on the phone and he was so sweet. He was so encouraging and took me serious and just was like, you can do it. And this is great. And then I think that's all I needed. I think I just put it away after that. I was like, cool. I'm a writer, you know, but that's how I met Greg. Right. Just him talking to my teenage self and being like, you are good. I bought him up because we're talking about spirituality and it's the same thing. You know, when... Greg embraced me when I first moved to New York as an artist. And, you know, he wrote an essay in the Code Switch book that just came out last year. And just him acknowledging and giving me encouragement and just sort of being in the room and talking to me was enough. Just that I'm saying, like, here's one of the giants right here that I have time with who's just dropping jewels right here, just sharing that with me. I wrote that for years, for decades. I still write off of that, you know? Oh, man. I also want to take this moment to address the work that I had from you, Sanford, years ago. This is a bit of an art theft story. <laughs> I want to hear this. I have been sour about this for going on 20 years now. There was a piece that I got from Sanford, which was a very delicately rendered 
portrait of Jim Kelly made of white rice and black beans on paper. Amazing. Incredible. I owned this yeah. piece, right? I loaned it as a gesture of young foolishness <laughs> to a clothing manufacturer in New York City. First of all, this is like moving three Fabergé eggs, okay? <laughs> moving it from where I had it just to all across the bridge to where this shot was, was like a bated breath production, right? Yeah, for sure. So we finally get it up. They move locations. They don't use the telephone to call me to tell me that they're leaving to go to Japan. They take the painting. Oh. They take it to Japan. For years, I'm chasing these people down, getting no response. So I asked every other day, where is my Sanford Biggers? She says she doesn't have it. It's, it's, uh, oh, it was an earthquake. It was damaging the earthquake, which what I don't believe. What earthquake? In New York or in Japan? Japan, Tokyo. Okay. They took it to Japan. They had an earthquake in Japan, and it was damaged, which... Could be true, but I don't believe it. So this is one of the greatest art thefts. <laughs> you never got it back. I never got the piece back. I never got it back. I need to make a good color reproduction of it and give it to you. So at least you have that. And it was made out of rice and beans, like pasted onto something. Put one grain by grain by grain That's by grain. That's so cool. So they're all facing the same direction. This is not glue and scattering it. It's not like the child, no. Tweezers and grain. Wow. No, 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 no. It was incredible. Yeah, it's real top. But you know what? You know, it goes back to that ephemeral we talked about with that sand piece, too, though. Sometimes these things live in our collective memory. It is ephemeral to a certain degree, but it's kind of eternal because it exists. Photographs of it exist. It has been experienced. Exactly. So it, this whole thing is like you could just abscond with those type of works and they're just going to abide that silently. I think I did for quite a while, but the universe will always present an opportunity for you to address an injustice if you have the belief in the world. I am so grateful to have you on my podcast. Thanks for having us. Violet Santi got a podcast. It's been such a pleasure and you guys are such brilliant minds and I love you guys. Thank you. We love you too, soon. Thank you so much to Yasin Bey and Sanford Biggers for such a fun and insightful conversation. The next episode is also amazing. I speak with Oscar winner Quest Love, radio star Angela Yee, and visionary artist Tunde Adebimpe. I hope you can check it out. Hey.